We've journeyed to this moment of Easter where we've celebrated this breaking in of God's life into the middle of the world in Easter. And what happens if you miss the stories that Jesus is crucified, he takes uh, death on by dying. And he's raised from the dead. And we believe as Christians that he was raised from the dead bodily. And because he was raised bodily, new life is given, is available to every person. And that that life isn't available for religious people, primarily. You don't have to be religious to be able to receive the life of God. You just have to be open. You just have to be hungry. Often, it helps if you're broken. If you're willing. And we, that's what we celebrate at Easter. That's what we're all about. That's what this story is about. But what we're also trying to do is to say, okay, well, given that that's happened, what do we do now? How do we respond? What, what does it mean to sort of live in such a way that it, that it makes sense of that having happened? And that's all that the Christian life is. And last week, we just said that what we want to be about is walking with Jesus, we want to keep in step with him. We want to walk alongside him. And the image we use, because it's the image Jesus used, is of an animal, one animal being yoked to another. And here we have a picture. And I said last week, this is George and I on our holidays. It's actually not. It's two oxen yoked alongside each other. It's an image of intimacy, of being yoked, of being tied closely to Jesus. We said this is a picture of the Christian life. It's a life with Jesus. And if you want to describe what Christianity is, it isn't a set of propositions that you have to learn. It's not even a set of creeds you have to recite. It's not a series of prayers you have to pray fundamentally and basically before it's any of those things. It is a life with Jesus. G.K. Chesterton. I said this last week in an attempt to impress you. I don't know if it worked. I'm going to say it again in a vain attempt to do the same. He said this, the Christian ideal has not been tried and found wanting. It's been found difficult and left untried. We don't want to make the mistake at this church of not giving this a go. Giving this life with Jesus a real try. Because we believe that as we try living in his power, following him, being bound to him, we believe that the result of that is truth and it's life. Or to put it another way, it is freedom. It's hope. It's mercy. It's grace. It's all the things that we want to live for. But this week... I want to look at an underlying attitude that is essential if we're going to walk in the way of Jesus. It's a basic attitude of anyone who's serious about following Jesus. Without it, we won't go very far. And I'm going to cheat this week. I've got a treat for you. We're going to watch a video. Now, this is a little bit like when your teacher says, today class for your history lesson, we're going to watch a video. And everyone goes, yes! Right? You remember that? Secondary school? Yes, we're watching a video. No writing! It's kind of our version of that. Now, this video is taken from the character course, the first session. And Roger, who spoke a few weeks ago, is introducing it. There will be times he refers to the character course 
obviously, because that's what it's for. But I think it describes much better and more succinctly what I would want to say today. So if you turn your eyes to the screens, we've got nine minutes of a video. In Matthew chapter 11, Jesus speaks to a group of people who felt that they'd fallen foul of the cultural and religious expectations of their day. They, they felt inferior, they felt that they were moral or spiritual failures. And yet when Jesus speaks to them, he says this, Come to me, all who labour and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. In other words, he invites them and he invites us into a different kind of learning. If we're dim, he won't snuff us out. If we're discouraged, he won't discourage us further. If we feel we're failing, he isn't going to reject us. In other words, he calls them. He calls them and he calls us to a new form of learning. The word for learn there is manthana in Greek, from which we get the word disciple. He calls them to be students. He calls them to be apprentices. He calls them to be disciples. This idea of calling and vocation is interesting. Because one of the things that psychologists have found about learning is that we tend to learn best when we learn for a purpose that goes beyond ourselves. Yes, learning can do us good, we can find it enjoyable, we can find it satisfying, but we seem to do our best learning when we have a sense of what good is this learning going to do in the world. In other words, what difference is this going to make? And as followers of Jesus, that's part of the rationale of the character course, that Jesus calls us to learn for a purpose beyond ourselves, to learn in order to make a difference in the world. And so together we'll be gathering around the Bible and we'll be looking at the teaching of Jesus and of the New Testament particularly, and we'll be asking this question, what are we learning and what difference is that going to make? But we all know that learning isn't always a joy. Sometimes it can be painful and frustrating and difficult. As a poet Khalil Gibran said, I've learned silence from the talkative, toleration from the intolerant, and kindness from the unkind. Yet strange, I am ungrateful to these teachers. Psychologist Carol Dweck has had an enormous impact on the world of education. She says that when it comes to learning, we can take one of two attitudes. Either we can take a fixed mindset, or we can take a growth mindset. In the fixed mindset, we go into things believing either that we're intelligent and can do it, or that we are stupid and unable. Weirdly, both those ways of viewing things stop us from learning. If we believe that we can't do it, we probably won't even try because we'll fear failing. On the other hand, if we believe ourselves to be greatly able, greatly intelligent, we're equally as unlikely to push ourselves into things that are problematic or difficult or may expose us as not being quite as intelligent as we'd like ourselves to believe. So whether we dropped out of school in our teens or rose to become the most high-flying academic, 
The fixed mindset would have us living in fear that sooner or later someone is going to expose our stupidity. The growth mindset, on the other hand, is interested in the learning, it's interested in the process. So if things become difficult or tough or challenging or a little bit hard for us to capture or work with, that's great. That's exactly the place we should be because that's where growth and learning is taking place. The Bible captures this growth aspect of learning when it talks about the way in which difficult things in life can help us grow in character and become better people. We don't have to believe that God intentionally harms us or has it in for us still to know that when difficult things come our way, we can still learn great courage, great passion, great wisdom, even when things are pretty tough. The writer to the Hebrews calls this discipline and puts it this way. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness for those who've been trained by it. Psychologists have called this post-traumatic growth, or adversarial growth, the way in which we grow as people through tough things. Sometimes we learn from life because we wish to. Sometimes life teaches us a lesson whether we wanted to know it or not. As followers of Jesus, we should expect to grow spiritually, to be tested and challenged and to become more like Jesus as a result. Which is why each week we'll be talking together and asking the question, what did you learn this week? Where did you struggle? How are you more like Jesus today than you were this time last week? So if you were listening closely, you might have noticed that the writer to the Hebrews in that passage emphasized training. Writing, for the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant, but later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who've been trained by it. The word trained there in Greek is the word gymnazo, from which we get the word gymnasium. It means a place of practice, a place where we exercise, where we try things out. And it implies that gaining knowledge is more than just getting some information, it's more than just going through a bit of pain. We have to do something with it. It requires some kind of action. That's the logic of spiritual disciplines. We may know it, but do we do it? It may be common knowledge, but is it common practice? Psychological research suggests that action is important too. In one study, people who were just made aware of a positive quality of character reported benefits for up to seven days. From a psychological point of view, that's what we would call an inert result. They felt better temporarily, but ultimately it made no real difference. On the other hand, those who were asked to practice a character strength in a different way every day were reporting benefits a week and even months later. 
It was putting it into practice in a kindly and curious way that really made the difference. Ultimately, following Jesus means doing something. Christianity is a walked out, practiced way of being in the world. The problem is, we often don't know what to do. And that's why as part of the character course, each week we'll be setting you a prep or practice to try in the week between the sessions. Now, I promise you, it won't take you any more than 10 minutes, but you'll have to commit to it, you'll have to decide when to do it, you'll have to be intentional about how you perhaps move other things around so that you can do it. And the other thing is, you may find that some of the exercises you really take to, others not quite so much. Some of them you'll try and discard, others you'll try and love, and they may even become part of your spiritual repertoire for the rest of your life. But the key thing is that we take what we're learning and we begin to put it into practice each week, and we come together and we talk about what that's like. So how do I put this without sounding militant? I can't promise you that you're going to feel the benefit of every exercise in the character course. But what I can promise you is if you don't do them, the course is going to do very little for you. Or perhaps to put it a bit more challengingly, if you really think you're going to become more like Jesus just by having a few chats with your friends and watching some videos and being naive, it's time to accept a call that transcends yourself. It's time to learn through struggle. It's time to turn your beliefs into practices. It's time to be a disciple. Mic drop. Amazing. Okay, so that's just a taste of the character course, which isn't the intention of showing it to you, but I think it describes something right at the heart of what it means to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, which is... And to go back to what I said before, the underlying attitude that we all need to share is an attitude of learning. Because to be a disciple essentially is to be a learner. Roger said the word in Matthew 11 for learn, manthano, and its derivative, methetes, is the word that we use for a disciple. A disciple is a methetes, a, a learner, an apprentice. A student. That word, it happens, it occurs 269 times in the New Testament. It's clearly very important that we get the idea that to be a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is to be somebody committed to a lifelong learning. And discipleship in Jesus' day was really important. It was taken very seriously. It was hugely rigorous. It wasn't about just showing up in synagogue on the weekend, it was about a life commitment. You know, if you were a, a five or six-year-old, you'd begin kind of primary school education. And if you were a good Jewish uh, boy or girl, you would go into what was known as Bet Sefer, which uh, literally means the house of the book. And you would begin to learn Torah. That is the first five books of the Bible. And when I say that you begin to learn it, what I mean is that you would begin to memorize the first five books of the Bible. And by the time uh, that you finish that, probably about five or six years later, to the ages of six and 12, you would learn by heart the first five books of the Bible. 
You begin by scripture memorization. And if you were really good, if you were the best of the best, you'd carry on to the next level of education. Bet Talmud, which means the house of the study, house of study. And around the age of 12, boys would continue their education. They'd memorize the Psalms, the prophets, and the rest of the Old Testament, so much so that by the end of Say 14 years of age, they'd have the whole of the Old Testament. What we know is the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible, they'd have it all committed to memory. I mean, I struggle to remember an email I've just read. But in an oral uh, tradition culture, it was so important memorization that they would learn the whole of the Old Testament. The best of the best, after this point, would carry on to the third place, Bet Midrash. The house of learning, it's like secondary school. And what you'd do then is to approach a local rabbi. You would go to that rabbi and say, look, can I study under you? And maybe he'd sort of give you some kind of interview process. And if you were considered to be up to the task, if you knew your Bible, and if you could respond to his sort of interrogation, if you showed that you were somebody with the attitude of learning required, then he might say to you, come and follow me. And you would then literally follow him everywhere. You'd watch how he ate. You'd watch every element of his life because you would be seeking to embody and relive his way of life. And if at the end of that process you were up to it, the the rabbi would come to you and they would say these words. Now come, follow me. Come, follow me. That was the invitation the rabbi would give you to a life then after them. And if you failed at any stage, you'd go home and carry on whatever you were doing. You'd learn the family business. You'd crack on with whatever other life was before you. Here's what I want you to see. The goal of this whole process was that you could become just like your rabbi. It was thought possible that you could live their life, that you could do the things that they had done in a way that still had integrity to who you were. That's what discipleship is. It's a life of learning. And we've lost this sense of discipleship in our culture and in our church culture. Dallas Willard says this, The disciple of Jesus is not the deluxe or heavy duty model of the Christian, especially padded, textured, streamlined and empowered for the fast lane on the straight and narrow way. He stands on the pages of the New Testament as the first level of basic transportation in the kingdom of God. For at least several decades, the churches of the Western world have not made discipleship, that is learning after Jesus, a condition of being a Christian. One is not required to be or to intend to be a disciple in order to become a Christian. And one may remain a Christian without any signs of progress toward or in discipleship. The decoupling, the tearing apart of being a Christian And becoming a disciple is a great travesty. No, we are to be learners. The purpose of doing any of this you're doing today is to learn about how to follow Jesus when you leave this place. And anyone, it's the most important thing I'll say today, I'm about to say it. Anyone can be a disciple. Anyone can be a disciple of Jesus. 
Mark 1, verse 16. As Jesus walked beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting it out into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come, follow me. You remember those words? The words that the rabbi would speak to the prospective disciple to invite them into a life of following. Come, follow me, and I'll make you fish for people. At once, they left their nets and followed him. They were fishermen. As Jesus was walking by the Sea of Galilee, he finds these fishermen. Why are they fishermen? Because they've dropped out of school. They've dropped out of rabbinic school somewhere along the way. They are dropouts. And Jesus approaches these dropouts and says, you can be my disciples. You can follow me. Come, follow me. Come, follow me. Not the best of the best. Not the best of the best of the best. Fishermen. Alongside the Sea of Galilee. And Jesus says, come and follow me. Come be my disciples. These would be the words that every Jewish boy or girl would want to hear. And Jesus speaks these words to these disciples. Notice that typically a a prospective disciple would go to the rabbi to ask. And here Jesus reverses it. He comes to find them. Where they are. Right in the middle of their own lives. He doesn't wait for them to come to him. He goes to them. And invites them into the adventure of following him. And what do they do? It says immediately they they left their nets. Of course they did. This is the best offer they've ever had. They heard about Jesus. They'd seen the early stirrings of what he was doing. And here they're given an invitation to become just like him. Because that's what discipleship was all about. And that's what you and I are offered as well. But to get onto that life, to get into that life, we need to develop this attitude that Roger spoke about, this attitude of learning, of being a learner. He spoke, didn't he, about the difference between a growth mindset and a fixed mindset. And I I watched that this week with a group of about 50 of us at the first week of the character course, and I watched that, and I just felt like, oh, wow. I have had, for so much of my life, a fixed mindset. Now don't get me wrong, at times there have been times where it's led me to succeed in things. I've done well at school because I've knuckled down because I'm so desperate not to fail that I've gone and worked hard. But I've not been learning from a place of freedom with a desire to grow. It's just all about making it work. I've had this sort of fixed Approach. I've got to know it. Do I know it? It's lacked a sense of adventure, of discovery, of journey, of freedom, of joy, the joy of learning. I've not carried that with me. I've been so terrified of failure. You know, I had a, an interaction with a church leader. I've told some of you this story before. I'm going to, I'm going to share it again because I think it's relevant and I don't have that many stories that are good. <laughs> And just before we came to plant this church, I was with this church leader. I'd just been on a walk around Hyde Park with this man, somebody I revered and looked up to, a father in the faith. And and he was speaking about an interaction that we'd had previously where he gave me some feedback. And his belief, his experience of the way I received that feedback was that I was closed to the feedback. And I think he was right. It's feedback on my preaching. And I'm actually quite insecure as a person. And there are times when people begin to try and give me feedback and I just don't want to hear it 
Because I'm afraid that in receiving the feedback, what I'm actually going to receive is the, what I receive, even though this isn't what they mean necessarily, is the message that I'm not good enough. That the fact that they're giving me the feedback means that what they're saying is I'm not very good. And the worst thing for me is that I'm not very good. Because I've tied so much of my value to my performance. And so that feedback was painful to me. So I did. I tried to justify it. And I just sort of shrink away from it, deflect it, you know, like you do. Well, you may think this, but it's because of that. Thereby sort of judo rolling the feedback. Is that even a thing? I don't do judo. This leader just stood at me. He said, I just want to get... He was so awkward in doing it. He just said... I, I remember talking to, he, mentioned, he name-dropped another Christian leader who's pretty well-known. He said the one thing that this other Christian leader said that they couldn't have in their team was a learning block. People with a learning block. It, just another word for this fixed mindset. Somebody who believed that they didn't have anything to learn. Because when you've got people like that in your team, they can't grow. It stunts the growth of the team. He said, you know, we had that interaction a few weeks ago, and I felt in that moment that you had a learning block. And I wanted to tell you that because I think it's important that you know. Oh, oh I was gutted. I was gutted. Absolutely gutted. I could see straight away he was right. And I said, I'm so sorry. You're right. I do. I have. And it's because I'm afraid of failing. I feel that so deeply, that desire not to be a failure. And I feel so often that I'm not enough. And because of that, I've blocked myself off from learning because I feel like if people are helping me learn, it means I'm, I'm not already there. And I just so desperately want to be there. I want to be enough. And I had this really transformative conversation with this guy, and I'm so grateful that he had that, that gave me the time. What stops us from learning? Primarily, I think what stops us from learning is fear. The fixed mindset is governed by fear. We want to say, I can do it. Or, I can't do it. And if we say, I can't do it, we don't try and do it. And the reason we say that is because we're terrified of failing. If we're saying, I can do it, I'm like, oh yeah, I've ticked it off. I'm there. I can't learn anything, but I can do it. It's governed by fear. Any of you ever done this before an exam? You're like, I know the exam's coming, but I'm not going to revise. Because in fact, what I'd rather do is bury my head in the sand. Because if I begin to revise, all I'm going to experience is the fact that I don't know enough. And that reality is too painful to me to, cut, to countenance. You know, people do this in their marriages. I know we've got this problem. But I don't want to begin to look at it. Because if I begin to look at, it, look at it, I'm going to find there are some things in there that I really don't want to look at in myself. And I might have to change. And I don't want to change. Because if I have to change, it means I'm not enough. And I'm so afraid of not being enough. We do it all the time. This fixed mindset is described. It's the paradigm of fear. And where we find fear, there's always shame lurking under the surface. When I was a child, I went to a place called Gilhead. Uh, on a school camp. It's the first time out of school and, you know, we all sort of wore our best Reebok classics to try and impress the girls and we were hanging out without our parents for the first time ever. This was in the 1990s for some of you who weren't born. 
And we had this, it was an outdoor sort of week away. And the first thing, we went on a sort of gorge walk and I was with my classmates and we had an opportunity to go to this like climbing wall and there was water beneath and we were tied to this wall and we had to climb across the wall up to this ledge and there was water down there, right? That's what we had to do, but I didn't understand the instruction fully. And I remember as a child saying, he said, the, the instructor, who wants to go first? I was like, I want to go first. So I was tied up and I, I hadn't understood fully what I was supposed to do. And I just, I, I, I launched myself off the ledge like Tarzan. <laughs> Except there was an, oh, I didn't do that. But like Tarzan, I launched myself off the ledge and I went straight down into the water. And all of my classmates were watching me. And this man berated me in front of everybody in the class. And I felt such deep shame. I was soaking wet. I managed uh, to climb up. I managed to use the rope to climb up to the ledge. But for the rest of the day, I was soaking wet and soaked in shame. Powerful memory in my history, in my past. And I think that experience, that shame experience, stopped me for years stepping up to lead. Because I received this message, when you step up to lead, you're in danger of being ashamed. And so I withdrew. If I stay at the back of the line, I'll be safe. But God has called me to lead. And so to do that has been a journey of overcoming shame. We will each feel the pinch when we step into a growth mindset. But a growth mindset isn't defined by fear. What's the opposite of fear in the scripture? Love. Absolutely. The opposite of fear isn't courage, it is love. A growth mindset says, I love learning. I love it. I love the goal of learning. I love the fact that when I learn, I get to bless other people. So even though I can't cook, I'm going to try and bake some bread. Because then we can gather around the bread. I did this just a couple of weeks ago. I burned it. It's meant to be in there for half an hour. It was in there for an hour and a half. (laughs) It was more than a little chewy, folks. But we ate the bread. We enjoyed the bread. And next time, I'll make the bread better. Growth mindset is described and defined by love, not by fear. The love of learning, the love of adventure, the love of following Jesus. Because you know what? Following is worth it, even if it's not easy. Do you want a growth mindset? Do you want to look at the world and say, look, I don't know exactly how I'm going to navigate my way through the day, but I believe that there's good waiting for me to be discovered today. What are we to do with the enemies of fear and shame? How do we cut beyond them and get into growth? How do we, how do we get rooted and founded in love so that we can grow as disciples? And as humans, because by the way, a disciple is a human. To become a disciple is to go on a journey to becoming fully human. Here's what we do. We take our willingness to our rabbi. We approach our rabbi Jesus and we say, look, would you teach me? I don't know very much, but I'm open. I know I have failings. I know I have flaws. Would you teach me? And in that willingness, he just like launches on it. He says, yes, I've been waiting for you to say that. 
Do you know that the reason you're saying yes to me is because I've been whispering in your ear, come follow me. And he will never shame anyone. And he'll never try and motivate you through fear. A bruised reed he will not break. A smoldering wick he will not snuff out. And we can learn so much with him. I was not prodigious at science between years seven and nine of high school until I met Miss Park. And under Miss Park's faithful tutelage in years 10 and 11, I went from middle of the road science performer to top of the class. I ended up doing A-levels, two science A-levels. I ended up going to university to study science. I'll tell you why. Because, because I met Miss Park. She just gave me a sense of confidence. She showed me that learning was fun. She enabled me to do that. We have somebody much better than Miss Park. Although thanks be to God for her. Bless her wherever she is, Lord. We have somebody far more able, far more loving, far more gracious, far more merciful on our side, in our team, in our corner. We have Rabbi Jesus who invites us into the learning, the lifelong learning, the adventure of learning, of following him. Why don't we stand? And we're going to pray. And what I'd love us to do is just to open our hands. It's a posture, isn't it, of openness? It's a posture that says I'm open, that I'm willing, that I'm here. We're going to, over the next few weeks, look at some particular practices some ways that we can learn. We've all got stuff to learn. I have as much, if not more, to learn than you do. I want this to be a season of stepping into a growth mindset for me. But I want this for our church. I want us to be a place where we're just willing to say, I don't have all the answers. Because you know, the city of Nottingham isn't waiting for a community of people who say they've got the answers. They've seen that before. And it wasn't good news. time to lay down the answers and begin to start asking the questions again. Father God, here we stand. Our hands are open before you. And we're asking for the spirit of truth to descend upon us because we want to learn. We lay down the answers. We lay down our attempts to impress you with our knowledge and our learning. We're just children. We're just children. But you are a good father. You are a gracious father. You're patient. Even when we don't get it. Even when we're banging our heads against the school desk because we can't learn it. You're patient. Be our teacher, we pray. Let's just wait on the Lord together.